Good evening, folks, and welcome to a very special episode of the Third Impact Anime Podcast. As some of you may know, we were recently at Animazement in Raleigh, North Carolina. We were their featured panelists for this year, and we could not thank them enough for having us out to do an absurd amount of panel content for them this year, something like 24 hours over the course of the whole weekend, which it may sound exhausting, but it was really fun, actually. Uh, additionally, at the event, we were able to interview two folks that I think you guys will be particularly excited to hear from, uh, the first being the subject of this particular episode, which is our interview with Robert Woodhead, the founder and CEO of Animego, one of the oldest anime licensing companies in North America, if not the oldest. Uh, this episode will be our interview with him, where we discuss how Animego came to be, uh, the different titles that they've released throughout the years, and how Robert thinks the anime fandom has changed throughout time. And while Bill and I were talking to Robert, uh, Sully had the chance to interview the voice of Frieza in Dragon Ball Z, the iconic Linda Young, and we are very excited to share that interview with you all very soon as well. Of course, we want to send a huge shout-out to all of the Animazement staff for putting on such an awesome event. Uh, the panel staff in particular were just outstanding. They were doing a great job the whole weekend. They were very helpful, very attentive. We really, really appreciate their work. And we really hope to come back next year. That would be awesome. And if you like the panels that we do or the podcasts that we make, uh, please consider supporting us by either just sharing our content with your friends or supporting us on either Ko-fi or on our brand new Patreon, which we just set up probably about a week ago. Uh, we don't have much by the way of perks just yet, but if you have any suggestions for us, uh, we are all ears and we are eager to hear your ideas about what we might be able to do as perks at some point. Uh, you can find links to all of our social media content, including our crowdfunding pages, uh, via our Twitter page, which is twitter.com slash ti underscore anime, or just at ti underscore anime. And you can find the links to all of the social media junk that we have on our link tree, which is linktr.ee slash thirdimpactanime, or on our website at thirdimpactanime.com. Again, thank you so very much to Robert Woodhead for being on the show. We really do appreciate it. And we also cannot wait to put out our interview with Linda Young as well. So please enjoy this episode and we'll see you guys in the next one. We are here at Animazement in Raleigh, North Carolina, and we're talking to uh, Mr. Robert Woodhead, the CEO of Animago. How are you doing today, sir? Fine, thank you. Good. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and uh, speak to us a little bit and to sort of uh, tell our listeners about the work that you do and the work that you have done for many decades at this point. Um, a lot of the uh, episodes that we do on the podcast are about older anime. It's something that we care a lot about. Um, we appreciate the seasonal grind, but we understand that there's a lot of um, 
fun and interest to be had when you return to the old classics. So it's it's thanks to companies like Discotech and like yourself that continue to make mo uh, vintage anime relevant in the modern era. So we really appreciate you for that. Thank you. Thank you. So could you tell us a little bit about like how Animego came to be? Uh, Animego actually started as a joke. Um, I was writing computer games and one of the people I was writing the games with was a huge anime fan. Uh, this was back in the day when uh, there was no commercially available anime. It was all like third generation VHS copies and no subtitles and uh, basically one guy in the club who knew Japanese was live translating. Um, so um, I just gotten a, a video board for the Macintosh 2 that allowed me to put graphics on top of video and I was playing with it and he saw me doing this and he said, well, could you use that to subtitle? And I said, yeah, you know, pixels are pixels, no big deal. And he said, well, could we subtitle some of my uh, anime so that I can show it at the, um, at the fan club meetings? Uh, and I said, yeah, I guess so, but, you know, I'm always going to Japan on business. Why don't I go get some licenses and we'll, we'll sell it? And uh, after we stopped laughing at how awfully stupid this idea was that couldn't possibly ever work, in no way was ever going to be a viable business. It's like, who would buy this stuff? We decided, what the hell? We got nothing to lose. It's not going to cost really any money to try it. And so that's how the company got started. So roundabouts, like what year do you think that was? 89. 89. So uh, there had been anime in America before then. So how, like, how easy was it for you to, I guess, like break in, I guess? Like, what was it like to, you said, go over to Japan and get licenses? Like, what did that look like? Um, initially, it was quite difficult. And in fact, our first license came from the U.S. subsidiary of a Japanese company. Okay. Uh, a sort of, of a trading company. Uh, but once we'd done, uh, I'd gotten the title out, the first title we did was called Maddox Zero One. Yeah. Um, once we'd done that, uh, at least we had something to show that, you know, we weren't just a bunch of, like, crazy fanboys. Um, then, uh, I got a call from Toshio Okada, yeah. one of the founders of Gynax, and he said, come over and do a computer game convention for me as a guest, and I will get you interviews and meetings at all the anime companies. And so I went and did that, and he not only got me interviews, but he provided me with an interpreter. Uh, and so I spent the entire week running around Tokyo with this woman as my interpreter. And after all the business was done, I asked her out on a date. And the long story is we're still together. Oh, great. That's awesome. So, so that's how I met my wife. Uh, and so the, the response from the Japanese was cautious, but positive, but nobody actually wanted to do a deal. Right. And I, I was complaining 
to Okada uh, that you know everybody seems to be very nice, but nobody actually wants to you know sign anything. They don't want to commit, right? And he said something that was either very wise or some of the best bullshit of all time when he said told me that everybody wanted to be the second person to do business with me. Oh, I see. Well, as it turned out, a few months later, one of the companies um, did decide to try me out, mm -hmm. and that was uh, Riding Bean. Mm -hmm. And after that, the floodgates opened, and now, you know, since I, I'd done business with a Japanese company in the Japanese way, now, sort of I had somebody vouching for me, and then it became relatively easy to get licenses. Okay. So I guess how did you then get Riding Bean out to the American fans? Uh, well, we, we translated it. Uh, we actually got on the internet before it was the internet, when it was Usenet, and uh, found some people in rec.arts.anime, the, the original Usenet news group who were interested in giving it a try and did translations and and uh, I wrote the first version of our subtitling software and uh, went into a video studio and literally we had one big machine with one tape and another big machine with another tape, the record tape, and my computer in between and Literally, we had to press play, press record, Ooh, and wow. then I had a mouse button and I had to like tap the mouse <laughs> at just the right time to start the synchronization. Wow! <laughs> and then there was a there was a there was a point a few seconds later where I, I could pop up a title and, and and release it so that I would tell I could I could tell it was absolutely perfectly synced. Right. Um, and if it wasn't. Then we'd have to like rewind everything and start it again. It took about five or six attempts to get it right, <laughs> and then we edited out that subtitle at the end. Right. But that's how we made our first master tape. Okay. Yeah, because that was going to be my question. Like in in such a digital era, like I, I mean, I'm a young person. I have no idea how you did subtitling in the analog era. But it was like you would run tape through a like a computer, and that's how you would do it. Well, that's how we actually did the final copy. Okay. Um, certainly the computers weren't and the hard drives were not big enough to store digital video at the time. Right. So um, what we eventually did, uh, figured out how to do was we would uh, go and get the master tape dubbed to VHS or Super VHS actually. Uh, and we would split the audio channels where one audio channel would be the actual program audio. Right. And the other audio channel would be uh, timecode audio. Where timecode wasn't digital back then, it was analog. It was all done with with, uh, with audio signals. It sounded like a modem sound, basically. Okay. Uh, and I had a little tiny box that could read the audio and send it out over a serial port so the computer could read it. Um, and then we would run that tape through the computer and make a copy of it, and instead of subtitling it, I would put up like a little bar chart of the audio volume. Okay. Okay. So once you had that, you could then go back and you had like the time code superimposed who was displayed by the little box and you had this kind of bar chart and you had the, the actual video 
and so you would play it on your VH, on your VHS tape, and when somebody started talking, you hit pause, and then you could just rewind the jog shuttle back to where you saw the the volume go. Doop, oh, I see. On the bar chart. Okay. And then you know, okay, that's that's the time code for that when particular the, piece of dialogue, right. and that's how you would sync it. Okay, cool. That seems very resourceful. Was that sort of the standard practice? Uh, that's how we figured out how to do it. Uh -huh. um, other people basically did similar things. Right. Uh, I actually wrote custom software to, to try and automate it a little bit, right. but mostly it was a lot of spinning around wasn't like a, you know, nowadays you go just go into Final Cut and you just like zip right. back and forth. Oh, there's the waveform. Yeah. Well, we took that waveform and we actually had it on the video. <laughs> that's um, amazing. Because we couldn't store the video. Right, right. Wow, that's amazing. But, you know, it's the tools have changed a little bit, but the process right. of just staring at the damn screen for hours on end right. is pretty much the same. Right, right. I guess jumping from writing bean, what was next after that? Bubblegum. Okay. And that was a huge hit, wasn't it? That was the one where people started to say, yeah, there's a real business here. Right, right. Because that one's sort of a, a staple. Like, people, when they go, when they look up vintage anime, Bubblegum Christ is kind of a poster child for that in, in some ways, for that sort of aesthetic and that style. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I guess after Bubblegum Crisis? Oh my goodness. Yeah, then it was just like tons of stuff. Tons of stuff. I mean... Uh, too much to remember right. and some things I'd like to forget. <laughs> right. I know you did a lot of like live action movies too. That, that came, actually came later. Okay. Okay. That came um, when in the early 2000s when the, the license costs were getting so high uh, that it just wasn't because it was just not economic for us anymore to do anime. Right. So we kind of switched into live action. Right. And then there was a there was a big anime bust. Right. A lot of companies went out of business, and we're going like you know we're doing the whole bullet time thing because <laughs> we made the right choice about going into into the live action. Right. Um, um, actually, when it comes to Japanese live action cinema, I think most uh, anime fans it seems to be they either know Akira Kurosawa movies or they know live action adaptation of, of anime that they like. Um, was there a title you think that anime go released that you think uh, more anime fans should see or that you personally really enjoyed? Oh, there's tons of them. Um, we did Lone Wolf and Cub. We oh, did, yeah. That was actually the first thing we did. Um, and the story about that is was that we were at Toho and we'd just done, you know, a meeting and we licensed some anime. And I asked them, oh, offhand, if you got anything else you think we might be interested in? And there was a little conversation and then the junior guy um, went off and he came back a few minutes later with some brochures and literally was brushing the dust off the brochures. Wow. Um, and it was all like samurai films. And like the third one from the top was Loma from Cub, and even I had heard of Loma from Cub. And I go like, oh, maybe we can do something with this. And and so we tried that, and it turned out to work pretty well, so we did a lot of other live action. Uh, the Zatoichi films, uh, there's a great film called The Blind Menace, which was the uh, 
film that um, Katsu, Shitaro Katsu did before Satsuichi, in which he plays a blind character, but but a like total evil, it's like scenery chewing evil bad guy. It's oh, just yeah. wonderful. That sounds like fun. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, Sleepy Eyes of Death series, uh, which is like oh, like twelve film series. There's a lot of really great stuff. Um, you know, Animado has always not so much been about doing things that we think are going to make us a ton of money. Right. It's more about doing things that we like. Think we'd enjoy working on that. Right, and right. if it makes money, then we get to do more cool stuff. Right. Um, so you mentioned Lone Wolf and Cub, and uh, Kazuo Koike passed away maybe like two or three weeks ago. Did you ever get a chance to meet him? No, I didn't. No. Um, so you mentioned... Uh, Know, doing things for fun and not necessarily that would make you a lot of money. So, pre your uh, your Kickstarter days, like what did make you the most money? Uh, uh, it was a lot of things. I mean, most of our stuff made. There weren't too many things that didn't make money. Right. Uh, there's some things that did better than others. Um, there's some things where. We should have made more money than we did, but we ended up spending too much money on the production. Uh, probably the best example of that is Macross, ah. where we spent just an insane amount of money restoring that series. Mm -hmm. uh, but like, and and it was uh, supposed to come out, but 9/11 happened right before it came out, oh, and man. that. It was a big economic disruption based yeah. on that. Um, so that was a little unlucky, but you know, we we made money on it and, right. and we're, we're perfectly happy with how it turned out. Right. Um, in general, the things that I don't think are gonna get make much money tend to do pretty well. And the things that I'm, uh, we gotta do this because we're gonna make money, end up tanking. So oh, I see. it Got shows that. you how good of a businessman I am. <laughs> Um, so, uh, we mentioned this uh, quickly before the podcast started, but uh, we're kind of living in a resurgence era of Urusei Yatsura. So, uh, we've got the original mangas back out in print from Viz. Uh, Discotech put out Be Beautiful Dreamer last year. Uh, but you originally had Urusei Yatsura TV that still no one has. So, do you have any, any interesting insights on uh, working with Urusei Yatsura as a, uh, as a franchise? Well, I, I love the series. Uh... It's one of those few series that actually got better the longer it ran. I mean, uh, in the, the later seasons are actually better than the earlier seasons. Um, I enjoyed it, but we did the entire run of UI eventually, which ended up being like over 60 DVDs. That's a lot. That's a lot. That's a lot of shelf DVDs space. 60 DVDs just for the TV series, not including wow. the movies and the OVAs. Did you do that on tape as well? Uh, yeah. Um, I don't remember if we got it all out. I don't think we got it all out on tape before we switched over. I think we got up to about 20 or 25 tapes okay. and about 20 uh, laser discs okay. before shifted over to DVD. I mean, it literally took us about, I think, over 10 years Wow. to, wow. to do that series. I know, um, oh, okay, go ahead, Bill. Oh, 
Well, one other series that I that I have a personal affection for is the, the Loop in the Third franchise, and I know that uh, Animego at the time released uh, the Film of Conspiracy, and you all guys also did uh, the Mystery of Mamo. So I was wondering if you could also talk about your experience with the Loop in the Third franchise, because I know at the time of the copyright issues, you couldn't actually call him Loop in the Third. Yeah, well, it's one of those things where we probably could have, but. The um, original producer said, hey, can you, can you call it, can you not use Lupin because of the French estates getting all uh, crazy about it? So we just said, well, here's how you spell it in Japanese, Rupan, so yeah, that's, that's what we'll do. Um, actually, we released uh, Fuma and The Legend of the Gold of Babylon. Oh, I'm sorry. It's okay. Um, so, I mean... Those are the sort of things, uh, you know, when when the licensor asks you to do something, asks you for a favor, you, you just say yes and you don't worry about it too much. The fans know what it is, right. so I wasn't too worried about it. Right, right. So um, at one point, um, I, I, if I recall correctly, correct me if I'm wrong, but you guys were working with uh, uh, CPM to put out uh, Beautiful Dreamer? Um, the story about that was that the rights in Urusei Atsura were split between two companies. Uh, Toho had Beautiful Dreamer. If I, I think it was Toho. Yeah, Toho had Beautiful Dreamer. Godzilla stuff in that movie and stuff. Right. And another company was the licensing agent for everything else. Okay. So I was living in Japan at the time. And my strategy was, I was going to go to the other company and get everything else, and then I tootle my way over to Toho and pick up Beautiful Dreamer. Mm -hmm. At the exact same time, John O'Donnell of CPM yeah. was at Toho, and his brilliant master plan was he was going to lock up Beautiful Dreamer, <laughs> and then head over to the other company and lock up everything else. Uh. And we literally executed the contracts like within a couple of days of each other, and then wow. tootle across town and go like, Oh shit! <laughs> oh my gosh, that's funny. You you've got to be kidding me. Yeah. Um, so, what actually happened was that that we translated and subtitled "Beautiful Dreamer" for him, uh, so that the, everything the styles would all match. Yeah. And when we released the movie box set, we actually made the box set one tape bigger so that you could slot in, in the CPM version. That's it funny. had a little spacer in it so you could get the CPM thing and slot it <laughs> into the box. That's cool. So you mentioned uh, Studio Gynax earlier and uh, one of your uh, notable releases is of course Otaka no Video which both of us really love. We think it's a, a great uh, picture into uh, sort of the timeless nature of otaku because there are a lot of things in that film that uh, were very true then that can still in some ways be true now so it's it's a, it's a really fun little OVA. Uh, so do you have any stories about working with the Gynax guys? Other than, of course, meeting your wife, which is kind of a big deal. Yeah. Well, we, we still work with them. I mean, um, we talk to the Gynax people all the time. Uh, they're, they're friends of ours, and they're very helpful. They know everybody, of course. So when we're trying to dig up materials for one of the titles we're doing, they're often a great resource. Uh, Mr. Sato of Gynax has done commentary on several of our discs. Okay. You know, he's very knowledgeable. Um, and uh, uh, and, they're, and they're just like real, really chill people. So 
so they're they're uh, we're always happy to work with them. Gotcha. And of course, but we've known them forever. Right. That's cool. That's awesome. Um, so I guess let's move into what you're doing now. Like your first Kickstarter was Bubblegum Crisis. Right. So where did the idea come from for you to do that for crowdfunding stuff, which is something prior you hadn't done? Well, actually, uh, Macross was sort of, I like to call it paleo crowdfunding okay. because we literally did that. We did that and Kimmy Garange Road where we, we didn't collect the money in advance. But we said, like, if we can get, like, 5,000 people or whatever who say they will buy it, right. promise to buy it, we will go out and do okay. it. And, you know, people signed up and uh, pretty much kept their word. They, uh, I, I, have, I still have emails in my archive for people, like, um, saying, like, I can't, I can't, I know I promised to buy it, but I lost my job. Oh, I don't no. know. Like, oh. <laughs> I hate that. <laughs> yes. I said, like, don't worry about it. We'll make an extra one. We'll hold it for you. <laughs> That's kind of you. <laughs> yeah. But um, the Kickstarters have never been at a, about funding the project. They've been about getting, uh, about, as a distribution system. Right. Uh, getting about marketing, getting the word out, um, and also involving the fans in the actual production. Right. So uh, we... We actually let fans volunteer to work on, on some of the projects. Um, some of them have actually started working for us professionally. They were just like so good that we said, we cannot let you volunteer. We have to pay you. Oh, nice. Uh, so at several, of the, uh, several of them have traditionally into having professional positions. Or they're doing things in the industry now right. where, you know, basically working on one of these crowdfunding projects was kind of like uh, their resume item, uh, which is always good, although I kind of feel guilty about it now because, you know, I, I like, inflicted the anime business on them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it can be grueling at sometimes. Yeah, I, I jokingly refer to this business as the sausage factory because it's like, once you know how the sausage is made, you never want to eat it. Right. <laughs> and, and it can kind of ruin you a little bit in that uh, you see all the flaws, you see all the shortcuts, um, when you have to, and, and when you have to watch something like ten times, yeah. uh, even if you like it, uh, you know, doing that final proofreading check is like, uh, it's like blood is dripping out of your eyeballs. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I bet uh, watching the same stuff over and over for QC and all that stuff can get really exhausting. Yeah, it's really annoying because like, I just got a QC report from one of our, our testers on uh, Gunsmith Cats. Yeah. And it was like, we got it down to the point where it's really a little nitty gritty. Like, stuff like I'd been, I put hyphens in the wrong places or I'd no. been inconsistent with my <laughs> hyphenation. And I go like, ah! Right. So, um, I guess uh, you, you've done, uh, let's see, uh, Bubblegum Crisis, uh, Otaku No Video, Riding Bean, and now you're working on Gunsmith Cats. Um, so, you keep doing it, even though it's, Sausage Factory, so what keeps you coming back to keep doing these every time? Well, each project has its interesting things about it. Either the people who were the original creators um, that we get to interact with, or we try something new. Uh, like um, on the Gunsmith Cast projects, we, we, um, we worked out, based on fan feedback, a bunch of extra goodies that we could make, yeah. like keychains and 
rubber straps. I'm excited and, to get mine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I actually have some of the samples that, oh, nice. uh, that I'm showing at the at our um, panel this afternoon. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so there's always that. I'm always trying out new things. Uh, and like I do enjoy the creative process of, of the dialogue editing when I'm doing the subtitles and the layouts. Because I do all that stuff myself. Okay. Uh, and, you know, voicing the characters from the translation, making sure that it's right, um, the research and stuff like that. So, I, was, I mean, I wouldn't do it if I didn't enjoy it. I mean, I right. don't need to do this. Um, you know, I'm, I'm of an age now that if I wanted to retire, I really could. Right. Um, but I still enjoy it, and I enjoy the reactions that it gets. So... Uh, I'm, you know, happy to do it as long as I can find interesting projects. Right, right. Um, when you first started doing Kickstarter, I imagine going to uh, your, to Japanese companies, they were a bit uh, befuddled or a little hesitant uh, doing the Kickstarters for uh, distribution. So was it hard at first to convince them, like, Kickstarter is a good route for us to go to get... Um, these wonderful uh, classics out to the public? Yeah, it, it was in many ways just like what it was back in the beginning. Everybody wanted to be the second person to do it with me. And it actually took a couple years before we managed to get the Bubblegum Crisis Project going, uh, getting everybody lined up. But once Bubblegum Crisis done and was a success, then um, the other projects became much, much simpler to, to get done and you know our next one's going to be Megazone 23 uh, we announced that about a month ago I think that we is that all three all three parts all three parts all the dubs because there are multiple dubs we're getting those um, and uh, Mr. Mickey Moto is going to do new artwork for us oh awesome and a few we, we got other people um, lined up to do commentaries and so, so it's going to be an interesting project. Yeah. I just watched the first one for the first time like two weeks ago. It's really fun. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's a good, like, very poppy, enjoyable little sci-fi thing. Yeah, and it is the first, well, second, really, OVA. Yeah. First one that's Dallos. Yeah. Which, by the way, is on Amazon Prime. Nice. <laughs> no, it's awful. It's, it's... <laughs> I've never seen it. I oh, just know. Oh, try, trust me. I think it was like an early Mamoru Oshii thing or something. I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. Go watch it on, on Amazon Prime. But be warned, once seen, it cannot be unseen. Oh no. <laughs> Sounds ominous. What major lessons have you learned from working on Kickstarter? Because I've heard from just about Kickstarter disasters of people overpromising and having to do with the physical goods. Now, how that can be a, a big uh, anchor chain to a Kickstarter project. Well, there, there are always problems. Uh, every single one of our Kickstarters has delivered late, not too late, but late, and each for a completely different reason. <laughs> wow. I like to think of it as a new and interesting reason. <laughs> uh, so like right now, we're running a little bit late on this one because Mr. Sonoda started working on his Bean Bandit project, right. and that turned out to be a huge amount more work than he thought, 
and so he's late on delivering some artwork to us. So we're kind of hanging fire waiting for the artwork. Did that have its premiere recently? Yeah, just last week at Enemy Central. Okay. So, cross fingers, we'll, we'll get the artwork really soon. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, my attitude is the, the smart way to do these things is under-promise and over-deliver. Over -deliver. I see it. And so when we hit a delay, I'm always going to use that time uh, to try and make the product a little bit better. Right. Um, so that it, that delay means something. It's not like I'm just going to sit on my thumbs right. and wait. Uh, we're continually QCing, finding little tiny tweaks, maybe add an Easter egg. Um, we do a lot of personalization on the discs so that the backers all have their names on the discs. Right, right. Stuff like that. Um, but, and also you got to be good at your logistics. Uh, I wrote custom software to handle the logistics, so packing up all of the, the, the products and getting them out. Um, and actually, I give that software away. It's real nerdware. <laughs> I mean, you, you really have to go in and tweak it to do make it do what you want. Right. But it will do absolutely everything a Kickstarter project needs to do. Right, right. So I guess um, you've been based out of Wilmington for the entirety of Animago's existence? Not the entirety. Okay. We started out in Ithaca, New York, which is where I was working. Okay. Then I moved to Japan for six years. Okay. And my mother ran the U.S. end of the business from upstate New York. Okay. And while I was in Japan, she moved down to Wilmington. Ah. So the company moved with her. And so then I moved back to Wilmington. When my wife and I moved to back to the U.S. Okay. So we've been there ever since. Okay. It's total coincidence. She she moved to Wilmington for her own personal reasons, and it just happened that Wilmington was also a movie production center, which right. had a lot of you know good production people and voice actors and all that right. sort of stuff. So we were when we were doing a bunch of dubbing. Right. We had all those resources available. It was a complete accident. Okay. Cool. Um, so I guess this might be kind of a difficult question, but uh, we don't. We can't, it's hard for us to like zero in on like what the history of like the anime fandom and specifically North Carolina was like. So is there anything that you think sets our state apart from other regions of the country? Yeah. Might be kind of a hard question. Better barbecue maybe? I, don't I know, guess, I mean. I would agree with you 100% on that one. Yeah, I mean it's good barbecue, but yeah, I don't know. It's It always, yeah, I, I get curious about that stuff and, and maybe there's nothing, but I don't know. How do you think fandom has changed in general? That might be a better question. That's a tough question. Um, you're seeing a lot more cosplay now yeah. than you used to. In fact, I have this sort of theory that uh, Japanese anime cosplay is what has caused Halloween to become a much more adult holiday. Right. In that cosplay at anime conventions and then later at like comic cons yeah. made uh, dressing up for adults kind of socially acceptable right and then that kind of bled over to Halloween because like when I was a kid Halloween was 100% kids right and like 13 years old tops mm -hmm. uh, and now of course you know there's adult Halloween parties and all that sort of stuff and I have a feeling that's sort of a 
cultural bleed over from Japan. And now, of course, it's all gone back because now they're celebrating Halloween in Japan. Right. This shirt is from Tokyo Disneyland. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's like, I'm, and I'm actually in Japan almost every year. Um, it, at the end of uh, October mm -hmm. and so like I see all the Japanese Halloween stuff and it's like oh it's so strange yeah <laughs> it's pretty wild I think I have two questions okay. um, Animego was around during the big bubble that was around during the mid 2000s yes. and it's crazy just the amount of money companies were spending on different titles was there any kind of funny or interesting stories from that bubble period that really sticks out to you? Well, um, there were several times when uh, I was interested in a title and I was told how much somebody else had bid for it. And I just looked at the people across the table and said, if they've offered you that much money, take it. <laughs> take it and insist on cash in advance. <laughs> uh, you don't have to tell us like a title or an exact figure was the usual ballpark that you would hear? Oh, there have been several bubbles. <laughs> I mean... Do you think we're entering into one now? Actually, one just popped. Oh. A couple years back. Um, oh. Now, I, I don't want to get into specifics about the numbers, except that it was like about five times more than I thought. I, wow. I mean... If somebody can pay that much money and make money at it, mm -hmm. then they're just much better business, uh, businessman than I am. Right. And not that I was ever claiming I was a great businessman, mm -hmm. um, you know. But I knew how much I thought I could I could pay and still make money, and some of the amounts were just insane. Gotcha. Um, gotcha. Um, and I would also ask: in recent years, I would um, with companies like you and with Discotech, more uh, classic titles have become more available and it became uh, more of a fandom, whereas maybe in the earlier days of anime fandom, um, we kind of had a specific perception of we want anime to be uh, a certain way or we only want the new stuff. Why do you think classic titles have kind of gotten this resurgence in recent years? Well, I think part of it is that um, older fans who grew up with the, the classic titles uh, they have a great deal of nostalgia for them, and uh, so, especially when we can release them on Blu-ray, uh, they really want to get the best possible quality version of this title that, that meant so much to them. Uh, and that's why we're really big on doing everything we can possibly do to, to make this sort of a, like a, a reference collection. Right. You know, like an art, uh, so that you know, 20 years from now, this will still be like the best version of it that it ever was. Right. I'm sure um, you get this comparison a lot, but like the Criterion version. Yeah. Um, you know, just gathering all the materials we possibly can that are still available. Right. Um, and so it's part of it's that, and part of it's as, as new fans um, become, you know, really knowledgeable uh, they want to look back to the roots because so many of the of the tropes that are in the stuff they currently love can be traced back 
through the creators, through the links to the shows and creators. Right. Um, back to the to the early days, uh, and, and and you see like um, you know, this particular explosion style. Right. Dates back. There's a there's a great ex example of that in, in Gunsmith Cats. Uh, in the commentary, this is something I'd never heard of. Um, in one of the commentary tracks, the, the Japanese commentators, uh, there was an explosion uh, on the film, and they literally said, oh, that's a Masuo explosion. Oh. Done by this guy named Masuo, who was like famous for this particular style of like how the explosion would come out and, and dissipate. Right. Um, uh, he's, unfortunately, he passed away recently. Um, so they were saying, oh, he's passed away. We'll never get another massive explosion. Right. Um, and so I watched the, the show from like 1995, you know, and I'm going, God damn, I've seen that explosion in so many later stuff. Right. <laughs> because he not only worked and did his signature, literally his signature explosions. Right. Um, in later shows, but other animators have, you know, been influenced by his style. Uh, so you see these kind of explosions mutating through the years. Right, right. And I just thought that was just a wonderful little tidbit that if we hadn't done this show and hadn't and the and the backers hadn't backed it enough to do this commentary, right? Because it was a stretch goal. Uh huh. We would have never, I would have never learned that, and, they, and the backers would never know that little thing. And now, when they go back and watch something from 10 years after that, from the mid-2000s, they'll see that, they'll, they'll be looking for the explosions. Right. And, and just the little one, little tiny things like that, that these, these, your links in a chain. Right. Okay. Uh, I think are really help improve your awareness and your appreciation of, of the artistry and the hard work that goes into it right and and also the the thought you know where they've done something that unless you know the historical background it'll just like swing straight over your head you'll never notice it it'll look nice but you'll never really appreciate it right, right. so i guess sort of in closing and you can say you can answer or uh, anime, Japanese media, or otherwise, but what uh, what art are you into right now, personally? Like, books, or movies, or whatever, something that you're really enjoying right now? I always like to say that I, I like anime, but I'm not a fan. Right. Partially because I'm in the business, um, but, you know, partially because, you know, I know that if I became a fan, it would destroy my life. Right. <laughs> um, I have that kind of personality, so I have, I have to kind of hold myself at arm's length. Um, I enjoy uh, genre TV, I enjoy genre movies, uh, historical dramas, science fiction. You know, I have a wide range of interests. I, I read a huge amount. Um, Anything recently that you would recommend? Oh, let me think, let me think of it. Actually, I, I, I almost hate to admit it. <laughs> Lucifer, the TV show. Okay. When it first came out, I didn't even bother to watch it because I thought, like, the devil is helping 
detectives in L.A. That's got to be the dumbest piece of shit I've ever heard of. Sounds like an anime. <laughs> I mean, you know, the, the quirky the quirky detective, I mean, genre has just been overdone to right. death. Right. Okay, so, so anyway, so I completely missed it in its network run. But then, of course, it got picked up by Netflix in the fourth season. So, about two weeks ago, I said, okay, I might as well watch the first episode just to find out how bad this show really is. And it's hilarious. <laughs> I love it. Very nice. <laughs> so, I've gone, I'm, I'm like two seasons into it now. And so, I'll be like literally watching half an episode and then going and doing five minutes of subtitle transcription. <laughs> And then my ADD will kick in, and I'll go back and watch another 30 minutes <laughs> of this stupid show. Excellent. But they actually did a really good job of, of setting up the, the rules of the show, you know? Uh-huh. Um, you guys good world, bu- world, uh, world building? The, the world building is actually the, the rules of Lucifer, the rules of the devil, are actually very well done. Okay. So it's actually a pretty funny and, and amusing show. So if you want a show that you can just, like... Veg out to, and it's amusing. Um, then that's my recommendation, my current recommendation. All right. Well, that kind of takes us to the end here. Unless you had anything else you wanted to say? We covered all my points. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you again, sir. We really appreciate you having you on, and uh, we'll be sending you a link to this so you can see it where it's available and all that stuff. I, I hope it's audible. Oh yeah, <laughs> it, it will be. It will be. We we've tested this. If it's not audible, I will. I will. Worst Kill case, Bill. get me on Skype. We'll just do the whole thing on Skype. Cool, I appreciate it. It should be good, but thank you again. We really appreciate it. Thank you so no much. まだ見ぬ世界歩く希望を抱いて信じるものはただ光る情熱熱く燃えたぎるぜ誰にも止められない心の I'm not